dash for the. Okay. Welcome to this, tonight's Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is the 12th of February, 2022. My name is Audrey and I'm a grateful recovered compulsive overeater from Mead in Ireland. I will be your host for today's study and our co-hosts are Nancy J and Maria F. If you have any questions during the meeting, you can contact either the host or the co-host by private message in the chat function. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either the host or the co-host. Um, there will be, Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. Um, we will post the link to the previous week's recording in the chat function. And we ask if you could please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen at any time during for any reason. We will post um, the seven tradition also in the chat function. I will now turn you over to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you very, very much. And, and I'm so grateful to be here today. Today is Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It's February the 12th, 2022. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president, if you don't know who that is. But anyway, um, I'm so glad to be here. It is so gorgeous here. I hope it's just as beautiful and just as fabulous where you are as it is here in Arizona today. Um, we have been studying the doctor's opinion in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And just to sort of bring us back up to speed, last week we were talking about one of the most important paragraphs ever written in any language. And that paragraph is the one on XXVIII. That's XXVIII. And the, the paragraph that is so vitally important is all of them, but the bottom paragraph starts with men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And we have been talking about the importance of the doctor's opinion. And this is one of the reasons that it is so vital. Without Dr. Silkworth, there's no program. You don't know what the problem is. And if you don't know what the problem is, it's very, very difficult to study or to get to a solution of that problem. And the problem in this paragraph as stated is we are not eating food because we like the taste of food necessarily. We are eating food because we like what the food does for us. And what does the food do for us? It gives us an instant effect. What is an effect? An effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. And what happens is over time, we become convinced that food and weight are the problem. We become convinced that what everybody is telling us is true and that food is the problem. So we start to believe a lie. And the lie that we start to believe is that if I could only lose weight, then my problem would go away. And what we learn is that is not true. Losing weight 
abstinence does not treat this disease. I'm gonna say that again, because it's monumental for so many of us. Losing weight and abstinence do not treat this disease. If losing weight and abstinence treated the disease, then diets would cure us and they don't. If losing weight and abstinence were to treat the disease, then hospitals would turn out winners and they don't. Treatment centers would turn out winners and they don't. Some of the procedures, some of the times that we have lost weight, some of the times where we have been abstinent for long periods of time, and we found ourselves not only as bad as ever, but, as, but worse than ever. Why is that? Because food was not the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. Now, if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the lack of power that we have over the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. And all of us have fear and guilt and shame and remorse and happiness and sadness. And all of us have all of these emotions, every single one of us, we don't have emotions because we're compulsive overeaters. No, no. We have these emotions because we are human beings. And as human beings, we are going to have these emotions. And for a normal person, they can dissipate anger, fear, frustration, guilt, shame, remorse. They can dissipate the toxicity of these emotions by doing things that are very, very simple, such as going to the gym, walking around the block a few times, lifting weights, driving out a bucket of golf balls, playing a game, reading a book, taking a bath, taking a hot shower, whatever that may be, they can dissipate these emotions very readily by doing these extremely simple, but in their life, highly effective things. And they're fine. And you see them every day. Maybe you live with one of them. Maybe you gave birth to one of them. Maybe one of them gave birth to you. But you see these people in their lives on an everyday basis. They get frustrated. They get upset. They take a hike. They take a bath. They lift weights, they do whatever, they read a book, they burn some incense, and they're done, they're fine, everything is groovy, but not so with us. And unchecked, these emotions will demand resolution. And the mind is a mind that is different from a normal person. In a normal person's mind, Let's take, for example, somebody who has an extremely dangerous peanut allergy. Somebody has an, a dangerous peanut allergy. When they get upset, and they may not even, we don't, we're not even conscious of this most of the time. It's just so automatic that we go to the food because the food gives us relief from these emotions. Well, <clears throat> take, for example, somebody that has an extremely acute 
peanut allergy. And when a person has a peanut allergy and they eat peanuts or they eat anything with nuts in them, their throat will close up. They go into anaphylactic shock and they have to have an EpiPen right now, not in 10 minutes, not in 30 minutes, not tomorrow when they get to it. They have to have attention right now. Now, the good thing is, is that they don't sit and tell themselves, maybe if I try dry roasted peanuts, maybe if I try unsalted peanuts in the shell, I'll be okay. No, they don't. They know they have that peanut allergy and their mind doesn't prey upon them to gain relief through the eating of the peanuts. Not so with us. We know, it, Dr. Silkworth tells us that the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, in other words, we know we're killing ourselves. We know we shouldn't be eating this commodity or that commodity, be it cookies, be it ice cream, be it pizza, be it whatever. We know that we shouldn't be eating those things, yet we do it anyway, because we need relief from the toxicity of these emotions and eating becomes a step up from where we are. It feels better to eat than to not eat. And in the brain of a, of a normal person, the intelligent will outweigh the emotional. In the brain of an addict, the emotional will outweigh the intelligent. In other words, we know we shouldn't be eating chocolate ice cream. We know we shouldn't be eating French fries or pizza or what have you, whatever that is for you. But yet we're doing it anyway. Most people do not operate like that. But he also says to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. In other words, what we are doing seems normal and natural. Normal people who have been dragged through the mud by their weight because of their eating disorder, they have been disgraced. They have been humiliated. They have been the object of ridicule. People have rejected them. People have given them the cold shoulder. People have made fun of them. And yet there we are eating that way yet again. So we cannot tell the true from the false because every single time I eat a corn dog, every single time I eat pizza, I lose control over the amount that I eat because once the food is inside of me and I get that relief from the toxicity of those emotions and that feeling comes over me that everything is now okay, it doesn't last very long. And what happens is the physical allergy takes over and I will pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again. And I will repeat that cycle over and over and over and over and over and over again. The mind telling me that the food is perfectly okay while the body ensures indeed it is not. 
So we call it a disease. Why do we call it a disease? What is a disease? A disease is something that separates us from the normal. If everybody had diabetes, if everybody had, God forbid, COVID, if everybody had whatever, they would be considered normal conditions. And as such, not only would they be considered normal conditions, anybody that didn't have them would be considered at disease. So Dr. Silkworth is very clear that within us, there is a battle raging. The mind seeks relief from this pain. The body ensures that in getting that relief, we will lose control over the amount we ingest. The more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, and it's just endless. There's no end to it. It's a bottomless pit. And the older that I got, there was no way that the food could continue to give me that relief. And the older I got, it took more and more food to give me less and less release. And what happened is as I aged, the disease got worse and worse and worse. If the physical allergy and the mental twist are the characteristics of a compulsive overeater, then the traits of the disease are threefold. The disease has three traits and they do not come to us from Silkworth. They come to us from a guy whose name was Richard Peabody. And Richard Peabody wrote a book in 1930 and it was called The Common Sense of Drinking. And in this book, he cited that there were three properties of alcoholism that were undeniable, irrefutable, and unless we get treatment, they are true. Number one, the disease is permanent. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. There is no way that science can make a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. It hasn't done so yet. Maybe someday it will, but so far, no dice, no dice. The disease is progressive. What does that mean? That means that as we age, this disease gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And as we age, the ravages of the disease become harder and harder for us to deal with. Being 50 pounds overweight is very different or 100 pounds overweight is very different when you're 17 than it is when you're 67. When you're 67, let me attest to this, and I'm not 100 pounds overweight, not even close to it, but let's just say that I was. I have false hips. I have false knees. They wouldn't even have operated on me if I was 100 to 150 pounds overweight. They would not have replaced my hips. They would not have replaced my knees. And I would have been in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, unable to walk the three miles that I walk six days a week, 
unable to get out of a chair, unable to, to navigate life. And that would mean that I would gain more weight even quicker. And that would mean that the disease would, would ransack me even worse than it does already. And so what we have here is a permanent progressive. And what else is the, is the last of it? Is the disease, if left untreated by a spiritual awakening, is fatal. The disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. What are the two characteristics of a compulsive overeater? A physical allergy. The allergy is an adverse abnormal reaction. And that adverse abnormal reaction, adverse means it's harmful. And that <clears throat> abnormal means most people do not react the way I do to food. I see people now Monday, I'm going out to lunch with some people that are here from Chicago. Both of these people, there are a man and his wife and another man and his wife, both of these couples and, my, and other friends from Chicago are here. And we're going to go out to lunch on Monday. None of them will eat one bite of food beyond what they want. If it's on the plate or not, none of them will finish what is going to be served to them at Pita Jungle. It's, they're not going to finish what they have. I finish my stuff, that's fine, but I don't go out and eat more and more and more and more because I'm not ingesting things I'm allergic to. But once they're done, they're freaking done. They're done. And they cannot imagine anybody wanting more food than what they've already, it's just beyond them. It would be almost as if you said, after you eat your food, you're going to set yourself on fire. They would look at you like you're crazy. Why would you set yourself on fire? But if I said to them, after we eat here, I'm going to go get some candy and some cookies and some cake, and then I'm going to go get some ice cream, and then I'm going to go get some pizza. That makes perfect sense to me. It just doesn't make any sense to them. My reaction to food physically is adverse and abnormal. And I also have a mind that is not normal when it comes to food. I use food to solve the problem of that buildup of human emotion. They simply don't do that. It is so foreign to them that they cannot understand it. And that also means that Dr. Silkworth has told us that in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. And if it doesn't have depth and weight, it cannot be carried effectively. And that's why we, who are compulsive overeaters, we who have this disease are the only ones that can reach the still afflicted. The still afflicted need every one of us. We are all servants of God. We are all messengers of this because we are the only ones who speak and understand the language of the heart. We are the only ones alive who have come through this and recovered. We are the only ones who get it, who understand. <laughs> Doctors, nutritionists, most of them, they don't get this. They understand it intellectually, 
but they don't get it because they ha- they're not afflicted with it. And so it becomes something that is extremely foreign to them. Okay, let's get to today's reading. And we are on page XXIX. That's XXIX or 29 in Roman numerals, 29 in Roman numerals. And we're in the middle of the page and it starts with the, with the paragraph, men have cried out to me in sincere. I'll give you a minute to get there. It's in the doctor's opinion, XXIX. And what we're gonna be examining in this paragraph, we're gonna be examining for the second time the explanation that Silkworth has that he is as powerless over the alcoholic as the alcoholic is over alcohol, that he wants to help you. He understands as much as anyone can what's wrong with you, but there's nothing he can do. The only force in this universe that can help you is a power greater than yourself. And that if you work these steps, and you have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, you will be neutral to food because your mind will already feel better and your mind will not see the need to hyper-focus on pizza, ice cream, candy, cookies, and especially at this time of year, Girl Scout cookies, because I don't know about some of you live in countries maybe where they don't have them, but good Lord, my drug pushers are out there in their little green dresses and their brown dresses, the brownies and the Girl Scouts, and they are out there and they are adorable. And they, years ago, they used to come to your house. Now they don't do that anymore. Now they go to like a store or they stay in front of a store. They don't come to your house anymore. Thank God, because you don't know whose door you're knocking on, which is fine. But boy, they were my drug pushers. Oh boy, could I go to town on the Thin Mints and could I go to town on any of those Girl Scout cookies? Holy mackerel, I could just go insane. And those are my drum pushers are the little girls in the brown dresses that are brownies and the green dresses that are Girl Scouts. Holy mackerel. They were my drug pushers. Okay. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. And he can't. And you know, here is the sadder part, not the saddest, the saddest is is the totality of human waste, human lives that are just wasted by this disease. And every one of us here that is above a certain age, we've stood in the cemetery, we've stood in the funeral parlor, we've cried in the hospital, we've cried tears over the loved one that we lost that had so much potential that had so much to give, so much to offer, and yet this disease took them away. This disease of addiction took them out. And the saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words, it might have been. The totality of human waste is immeasurable. The addiction to food, the addiction to liquor, drugs, gambling, you name it, anorexia, bulimia, the addiction 
does not care who it afflicts. It afflicts the white and the black. It afflicts the Jew and the Gentile. It afflicts the Catholic and the Protestant. It afflicts the Buddhist. It afflicts Pacific people. It, it, it doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care how many people love you. It doesn't care how many people need you. It doesn't care how much you need them. This disease will take you out and give you a beating of humiliation and strip from you every shred of dignity that was rightly yours at birth. And we talk about humility and humbly asked him. And too often we confuse that with humiliation. Humble, humbleness, humble, uh, humility and humbleness are not humiliation. I'm talking about all the people that slapped my stomach that I didn't even know. I'm talking about walking out of my house as an object of ridicule. Children laughed at me in public places. Adults laughed at me in public places. There was nowhere for me to hide. There was nowhere for me to go. There was no way I could conceal what was going on. If an alcoholic were sober at the moment, he could pass for a normal human being. If the drug addict were sober at the moment, they can pass for a normal human being. But the compulsive overeater who's two, three, four, five hundred pounds overweight cannot pass for a normal human being. I wrote bad checks. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I did things that hurt my friends. I did things that hurt my life. I did things that hurt my parents. I didn't want to do them. I didn't need, I didn't, I didn't uh, be, feel proud that I did them, but I needed to do them because I saw no other way out. I saw no other way out and I couldn't get out from the grip of this disease. I couldn't handle this life that I was born into. And Dr. Silkworth in this paragraph is saying that as a physician, he sees the horrible suffering of what this is, and there's not much he can do for you. He can treat you medically, but he can't treat you spiritually. He can do things for you, like give you vitamins. He can do things for you, like feed you. He can do things for you, like medicate you and give you a chance to rest but he cannot affect a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And the only way out that you have is through these steps. Faced with this problem, page XXIX, faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. When he's talking about a psychic change, he's talking about a spiritual awakening. He just didn't use those words. He wasn't from the Oxford group. He was a medical man. So the aggregate, what does aggregate mean? Aggregate, uh, aggregate means total. Through the total, through the 
aggregate of recoveries the re resulting from psychiatric, though, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading it wrong. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. We have to understand that we have an illness that only a spiritual awakening will relieve. There's no other way out. If there was one, I would have found it by now, as so would many of you. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. Now, this sentence that I just read flies in the face of thousands of years of ideas. People believe that the alcoholic was weak-willed, stupid, lacked character, lazy, undisciplined, and they believe that it was entirely a problem of willpower and that willpower alone would take care of it. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. In other words, there's a meeting coming up. They're scared. They're nervous. They're selfish. They're afraid that the meeting won't go according to their script. So they take a drink. And then they miss the meeting because the physical allergy takes over and they can't stop drinking. They just cannot stop. Page X, X, X. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. And what is the, why does he call it the phenomenon of craving? Because he knows it's there, but he doesn't quite understand it yet. He doesn't quite get where it comes from. And it is a physical reality that we react differently mentally and differently physically to food. The Yale University Alcoholic Studies Program proved conclusively, before they gave it up, proved conclusively that there is indeed what Dr. Silkworth observed, a physical allergy and a mental twist, that the mind will have an adverse abnormal reaction too. At first it feels fantastic, but before we eat the food, the mind will prey on us. The twist of the mind will prey on us to eat the food in search of this relief. And then we get the relief and the physical allergy does its damage. <clears throat> and then what is that supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight? We die. My mother died. My mother died of this disease. My mother had this disease. My mother was 275, 300 pounds. My mother had this disease. My mother was a very serious diabetic and she would wait you out. She would never let you see her eating. And she would wait us out. When we fell asleep, she'd go into the kitchen and she'd eat like there was no tomorrow, like tomorrow has been canceled. 
And this is what she did. She would never, ever eat in front of you. Never. She was a sneak eater from the word go. And uh, she was just not going to let people see her eat. But boy, oh boy, could she put it away. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and is in much and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the uh, psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. Going on the wagon for us would be going on a diet. They are over remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. A little later on in this book, when we get to it, we are going to find out that step three is a beginning and a decision. Step three is a beginning and a decision. So without that decision, decision to do what? Not to stop drinking, not to stop eating, but a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him so that a spiritual awakening can be affected and that the desire to eat food that's killing us is simply not there. It just is not there. <sighs> there is the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. And I was that person for a long time. I did not see a reason why I couldn't eat Doritos. I didn't see a reason why I couldn't eat Fritos. I didn't see a reason why I couldn't eat pizza. I like these things. Everybody else gets to eat what they like. How come I don't get to eat what I like? Because it was killing me and it wasn't killing them. And when they finish a certain average amount of it, they stop. I keep going and going and going and going and going. They don't. They just don't. I mean, doesn't everybody eat a gallon of ice cream at a sitting? No. Doesn't everybody eat 15, 20 pieces of chicken at a sitting? No. But I didn't see that. I couldn't understand that. It was beyond anything I could understand. There is the type of man who, admit, who is unwilling to admit he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. In other words, you see people coming into the meetings all the time. I'm not knocking these things. I'm just telling you. All of a sudden, they're going kosher. All of a sudden, they're going vegan. All of a sudden, they're going vegetarian. All of a sudden, they're going whatever. I'm not knocking those things. Those things are great. They have their place. They're fantastic. I'm not knocking them. But there's plenty of vegan food that you can gain weight on. There's plenty of vegetarian food that you could gain weight on. There's vegan food, kosher food, keto food. Um, what was that in my day? Stillman, the Stillman thing with, with the Stillman and the, um, the this diet and the pineapple diet and the walnut diet. And then there was the beet soup diet, borscht. My mother used to make beet borscht. Oh, no, I'd say not more borscht when I was a kid. I hated it. My dad loved it. So she made it all the time. 
you could sit there and, and, and do all these things. You're kidding yourself. These things all have their place. I'm not giving you a negative opinion or an opinion on these things at all. Not my place to give you an opinion and I don't care. But they're not gonna treat this disease. You could go kosher, you can go um, gluten-free and they, they, they all have wonderful places in the world. Not gonna treat this illness, not in this lifetime they're not. Let's keep going. There is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. And this is something that many of us, including me, have fallen privy to. A little later on in this book, we're going to find out as we get into Bill's story that he is going to remain bone dry for periods of his life. And yet he always picked up again until he had his spiritual experience. A little later on in this book, we're going to read about a man who was a very serious alcoholic, but he decided that until he made his fortune, he wasn't gonna take another drink. He will remain bone dry for 25 years. For 25 years, he's gonna not touch another drink. He makes a lot of money. He decides he's gonna retire at age 55. Out come the carpet slippers in a bottle and he was dead within four years. Within four years, he was dead from this disease. Did 25 years of sobriety treat his alcoholism? No, it didn't. Did 25 years of his sobriety give him any relief over his alcoholism? No, it didn't. So we're going to see again and again and again and again that sobriety does not treat this disease. And that is a very important concept for us to internalize, that no matter how abstinent you are, unless you have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, the disease will remain unchecked within you. Abstinence, sobriety, do not treat this disease. Very, very important. There is a manic depressive type, okay, entirely free from alcohol for a period of time. He can take a drink without danger. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are the types entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. I like to think that's my type, that I'm basically pretty normal in every respect, except when it comes to the food. So this is very, very important stuff. And it's important because it, it should smash through some of the myths that we have held on to. Myth for me was if I lost weight, then everything would be fantastic because that's what everybody told me. And I lost an incredible amount of weight and I still had problems. I still had challenges. Losing weight does not treat life. It doesn't treat life. <laughs> and so 
These are very important concepts. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. Once that pizza's inside of me, once that Reese's peanut butter cup is inside of me, every single time it will develop the phenomenon of craving. Every single time, not most of the time, not some of the time, every single time. I cannot eat these commodities with safety ever. The phenomenon, he calls it a phenomenon because he doesn't really understand it. He just knows it's there. Sort of like mosquitoes. We know that we don't know anything maybe about the, the life of a mosquito or what makes a mosquito bite us, but we know here comes another damn mosquito. I better kill it before it bites me. The, this phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And this is the third time he's going to refer to this entire abstinence a fourth time, but this is the third time he's going to direct us. He gives it its own sentence. He doesn't mince words. This is the third time that Dr. Silkworth is going to say to us, we must be abstinent. So anybody who's trying to work the steps while they're eating M&Ms with peanuts is kidding themselves. You're kidding yourself. You're eating popcorn. You're eating M&Ms. You're eating Raisinets. You're eating whatever you're eating, chocolate-covered cherries. You're kidding yourself. You don't need a spiritual awakening as the result of anything if you're getting that effect from the candy or the cookies or the cake or the food. You cannot be in recovery while you're eating. I don't know how else to say it. Again, for the third time, he's telling us, put down the food. Now, somebody in questions and answers is going to say, but wait a minute, Harlan, you told me I'm powerless over food. How am I going to put it down? You are powerless, but you're not helpless. You've put the food down for a couple of days before. Do it again. You're going to say in questions and answers, wait a minute, Harlan, I don't know how to put down the food. Yes, you do. How do I put down this pen? By putting it down. Stop thinking. Stop trying to figure everything out. Knock that perfectionism out of you. You put down the food by putting down the food. You stop eating the commodities which are producing your physical allergy. Cease and desist, stop it. Or amounts of food which are way above what you're supposed to be eating. Put down the food, put it down. Now, after two days of abstinence, now we can begin business. Now we can do business. Let's continue.
this immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron. What is a seething cauldron? It's a big, big pot. You see the witches in Shakespeare, they're stirring the pot. That's a cauldron, seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. Doctors have a very low opinion of addicts, very low opinion. They think we're just doomed. And many of us, many of us can know that you are a walking miracle. If you're in recovery, you are a walking, breathing miracle of God that most people will never make it to where you are. Most addicts will die in the food. They will not do what it is you're doing. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. The man that he's talking about here is Henry G. Parkhurst, Hank Parkhurst. And he had a lot more to do with the writing and printing of this book than anybody did. And if he had stayed sober, he would have been recognized as a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had a lot more to do with the writing of this book and the early formation of AA than anybody did, including Dr. Bob. Remember that Dr. Bob was not really recognized as the co-founder until three years after this um, fellowship was off the ground. It wasn't until about 1938 that Dr. Bob was recognized as a co-founder of this program and that Hank Parkhurst had a lot more to do with this book than anybody besides Bill Wilson. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and it seemed to be a case of pathological and mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life, was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, let's read that sentence again. What does it say? What? Following, not proceeding, not concurrent, not anything, but following the elimination of alcohol, following the elimination of alcohol. If that sentence is not highlighted in your book, take care of it for me now. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. In other words, once he put down the alcohol, he was in the town's hospital, and then he started going to the Oxford group meetings too. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. 
I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. Now, it is unfortunate that Henry Parkhurst in late 1939, in the fall of 39, will begin drinking again. But while he was sober, he alone believed that AA should self-print, self-publish this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to go into the whole history because it's not it's not what we're here for, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of historical information. Prior to us self-printing the book, a publishing house took a look at Bill's story, There is a Solution, and they said to Bill, what you have here is good. What you have here is, is good. Can you write some more chapters, Mr. Wilson? Can you make a whole book like this? And he showed them some more chapters once they were written. And they offered him $1,500 as an advance on the book. Now, you have to remember that $1,500 to Bill Wilson in 1938, in the fall of 38, I'm looking at October of 38, just a mere six months, seven months before the book is published, is printed, $1,500 would be like me offering you 100000 right now or a million right now. Bill was absolutely flat broke. He is unable to maintain the mortgage payments on 182 Clinton Street. And Hank Parker said to Bill Wilson, don't let them have the book, Bill. If they're willing to give us $1,500 for the publishing of this book, and Hank was broke too. Hank was flat on his keister broke. He said, we must be on to something. We need to hold on to the prop to this book and we need not give it to anybody else. Bill was ready to sign the book away, which meant that this book could be changed, edited, discontinued, rewritten. God knows what they, they would have had complete control over the book. And it was Henry Parkhurst that convinced Bill not to take the 1500. That was huge. And Henry Parkhurst does not really get the credit that he often deserves because he did drink again and he did try to hurt AA. He went up and down the Eastern seaboard during 1940, 41. And he, he says, Bill is a crook and Bill's gonna run off with Ruth Hawk even though he's married, which never happened. And Bill fooled me, tricked me, don't send in your money. People didn't know what the hell to do. And, and, and AA during the 40s was, was blowing apart. And I've talked about that here before. And thank God in 1944, 45, Bill started writing the traditions in the uh, Grapevine magazine. And in 1950, the traditions were ratified and they remain our governing direction today. 
But you have to remember that AA during the 1940s was blowing apart, blowing apart. Okay. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn, determined to die. We're talking about Fitz Mayo. And Fitz Mayo was also very integral in this program. And in many, many ways, he was much closer to Bill than anybody except Hank Parkhurst. And Bob was in Akron, but Fitz was in Washington, D.C. He was actually in Cumberland, Maryland was where he was, but that's not far from Washington. And Fitz Mayo, he died in 1943 of cancer, but he also could have been considered a co-founder of AA as well. He was very integral. He wanted more of a religious book. He was the son of an Episcopalian minister, and he went away from his religion for a long time. But when they got to him, he went to his knees and he said, if there's a God, show, show yourself. And he became very religious and he wanted more of a religious book. And his good friend, Jimmy Burwell, was an atheist. He wanted no religion in this book and the fight was on. Fitz Mayo was very definitely integral in the development of our program. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. So they bring Fitz to town's hospital. He's in terrible shape, <sighs> terrible, terrible shape. Following his physical rehabilitation. Now, when they say physical rehabilitation, think dry him out. They dried him out. They put him on the Belladonna treatment. Belladonna is a poison. But Charlie Towns, who owns the Towns Hospital, he found that if you cut Belladonna with certain chemicals, you could use it to dry these guys out without the devastating effects of the DTs. And it would help them rest up. It would put them to sleep so they could dry out. He had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. And this is what Fitz was looking for was willpower. And when he worked the steps, he found that he was neutral to alcohol. And once he accepted the program in the Oxford group, he will never drink again throughout his life. Unfortunately, he didn't live very long. He died in 1943 of cancer, but he never drank again once he accepted the Oxford group movement and then AA. Once AA split from the Oxford group in 37 in New York, he remained with the AA groups in New York and became very integral. Let's continue. We have just a few minutes left. The, his alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology, which you can think spiritual awakening. And we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. In other words, he worked the steps. What is being sold on the ideas here mean? It means he was convinced he had to work the steps and he did. 
I see him, he has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, MD. Now I'm gonna tell you something I want you to forget right away. I don't want you to remember this at all. And don't you dare write it down. I don't want you writing this down. The depth at which you accept the doctor's opinion will mark the urgency with that you will work the rest of the steps. Don't you dare write that down and don't you dare remember that. The depth that I accept the doctor's opinion will mark the urgency that I will work the rest of the steps. If you've really accepted the doctor's opinion and you know in your heart that you are a compulsive overeater, then you better glom on to these steps because they are the only known map between where you are and where you want to be. They are the only known method of recovery from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. <clears throat> Abstinence alone will not treat this disease. Nothing will give me relief from this disease in the way that a spiritual awakening will give me. Through the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, I have achieved something I have looked at all my life with jealousy, and that is true neutrality. And true neutrality means that I do not have a big urge or any urge to destroy myself with food. I simply don't want it. I react sanely and normally to situations in life. Now, I do not want you to remember what I just said about the urgency. I do not want you writing that down. That would be very bad if you wrote that down. Very bad. I don't want you doing that. So please don't. Okay, we're done with the doctor's opinion. Next week, we are going to crack open Bill's story. And we're going to study next week the life of a man who has this physical allergy and who has this twist of the mind. And we're going to see how we can identify in and how we can look at this story and we can see that I think like Bill thinks and I eat like Bill drinks. We're going to study the life of Bill's story next week. But for right now, just to encapsulate, just to, just to give us a running start into questions and answers, we have looked at the doctor's opinion, which is the blood and guts of step one. Step one is the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. That's all step one. Step two, uh, we agnostics. Chapter five, how it works are steps three and four. 
into action are steps five through 11 and working with others. Chapter seven is step 12. I'm going to do that again. So I'll save one of you the trouble of asking me. The doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism are all steps one and we agnostics, step two. In how it works, chapter five, we're going to study steps three and four. In into action, we're gonna study steps five through 11. And in chapter seven, we're going to study chapter 12 or not chapter 12, step 12, sorry, step 12, okay? Very important, okay. All right, Maria or Nancy, I don't know who else, or Sue, or I don't know who okay. else. I'm gonna turn it back to you guys for questions and answers. 